I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers of me, with me, of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And you can be seated. Howdy, y'all. All right, so if I say howdy, you say howdy, right? So howdy. howdy. There we go. All right, good. Uh, for those of you who are here for the first time and you're trying to figure us out, sorry. It's a circus around here sometimes. Slow burner. Open up to Philippians chapter 1 if you would. Find it in your Bibles or in the Bible app on your phone, one way or the other. Just find the text that Paul wrote to the Philippian church here. And let me say a couple of things before we begin a, a series that I'm really excited about. Uh, for the next few weeks, we'll be in this joyful letter. And I hope that today you have some joy that you've come with. Maybe you've come with trouble. Either way, this, this message is going to be for you. God has something for you in it. And in the next few weeks as we move through this letter, I think you might want a record of what God is doing in your life as we preach through this text. So we have purchased 150 of these scripture journals, and they're on the table in the back. Uh, there's probably a few left still right now. And we put a sign back there that says $3, which is the price that we got them for. If you buy these online, they'll cost about 6 um, now, if you can't do the $3, please do not worry about it. All right. Please do not worry about it. Because we want you to just be able to have one of these, so please take one as our gift to you. We just want them to go to people who are going to come back and be part of this series with us and use them and fill them up with the notes of the things that God is doing through this series with us, okay? So uh, even though we're right in the middle of the sermon and everything, we want you to be comfortable here. Please go ahead. If you want to get one, you can get up and go get one. No one, will, uh, no one will think that's inappropriate. You're welcome to just go and get your journal so you can start today and take some notes. And if you want, there's space in the back of your bulletin also, and you're welcome to use that. Uh, one more thing before we pray, and then I'll preach. I'm so glad for those of you who are here in the flesh today, those of you seated in the pews and uh, those of you who will hopefully come to Vacation Bible School tonight and see all of the wondrous things like the world-famous Dancing Elephants of India, as it says on this sign. I'm pretty sure Jeff Deloach himself is going to perform that. <clears throat> and the strongest man in the world, a true marvel of the human form. I think he gave that role to his son, Max. And so they're going to they're gonna come tonight and lead us in an excellent VBS. We hope that those of you here can come back and be part of it. 
Uh, but we know that there's also some who join us online through our Facebook. And we want to welcome you and say good morning to you also. And specifically this morning, we want to greet the Appland family in Denver, Colorado. We found out this week that the Appland family is in Denver ministering to their four-year-old son who has leukemia. And they can't leave the hospital because of the health regulations to be with him in the room. And so they're worshiping online and they found us on Facebook and they've been worshiping with us for the last few weeks. So we just want you all to know that we are praying for you this week, Applin family, and for God to be with you. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's pray right now. Our Father in heaven, you are a generous and gracious God and we thank you for giving us uh, out of your hope and your joy and your peace that fills us, you give us overflowing hope by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we are so grateful for that. God, our joy is not grounded in a thin happiness. In fact, some people here are going through very difficult times. Our joy is grounded in what you started in Jesus Christ and what you will finish in us because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And our hope and our love and the participation of the church that we enjoy is all started and created by you and finished by you in Jesus. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And so in the name of Jesus, we all pray and together all of us say, Amen. Amen. All right, so Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul writes to his friends in Philippi, and he starts this way, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy write the letter together. Paul, the father in the faith, and Timothy, his son in the faith. In fact, sometimes we miss this when we talk about Paul's letters, but eight of his letters have co-authors in the New Testament. Eight of his 13 letters. So the majority he writes in participation with other uh, workers in the good news of Jesus. And now it's Timothy, who for part of his career was the minister to the church in the city of Ephesus. And that's almost certainly the place where Paul is at when he writes the letter. But Paul is in a difficult spot because he's in prison when he writes the letter. It's one of the four letters we call the prison epistles or the prison letters. Paul has been forgotten. The government has thrown him in a pit, quite literally a jail cell that is under the street with a hole above him. And if it wasn't for Timothy and the members of the local church that would bring him daily food and maybe a scrap of papyrus that he could write out some notes on or his letters, he would have been completely forgotten in this place. So Paul is forgotten. But some of you know what that feels like. Some of you have been forgotten. Some of you have been sick for a time and unable to be out, and you felt forgotten. Some have been away for a time because of business or family troubles, and you missed your people at the church or at the office, and you felt forgotten. Some of you have lived through incredible loneliness. But Paul doesn't stay forgotten, because while he's sitting in that dark dungeon, 
Timothy comes in one day and he says, the church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus and he brought a gift for us. We won't be having to scrape together to come and feed you anymore. They sent enough money. We can buy lots of food. There's probably enough to share with the other prisoners. And we've got parchment here for you to write to them today so you can send a letter of thanks. And Paul begins, with Timothy's help, to write this letter to say thank you because Paul was remembered. And there's nothing like being remembered. In the moment when you're in your greatest trouble, to have somebody send the card or the text message or make the phone call or stop by and knock on the door and visit. And for Paul in this moment, the joy that he's going to condense into this short letter is because in his loneliness, he's remembered. And so Paul and Timothy together write this letter and they call themselves servants of Christ Jesus. Now today, in about the next 10 minutes, I'm going to give you a brief introduction to this letter with some of the words and the themes that will come up throughout the letter. And next week and the week after, Todd and then John will preach through the rest of chapter 1. And then I'll be back three weeks from now to begin chapter 2. And as we move through the letter, you'll see some of the same language come up time and again and some of these themes. So today, I, I hope in your Bibles or your notebook, you will take some of these things down. And it all starts right here in verse 1, servants of Christ Jesus. I hope that in your notes, you will put the word Christ, that you will write it down. I hope that you will notice and maybe mark in your Bible that Paul uses the word Christ seven times in these 11 verses. He will come back and call Jesus the Christ over and over again. And next to your word Christ, put the equals sign and then put the English word king. Christ equals king. Now many of you already know that Christ is the Greek word uh, for a Hebrew word, Messiah which means the anointed one. So you've got Christ and you've got Messiah and you've got anointed one, which means that this title has to do not with just being some kind of savior figure, but an enthroned savior figure. Sometimes when we think about the word Messiah, the promised one, the coming one, the anointed one, we maybe think of it a little too cheaply. As if Jesus is just some lone ranger who's going to ride in on his white steed and save the day. As if Jesus is the last Jedi. But these are not the words you're looking for. When they say Messiah and Christ in the first century world, Mark 1.1 says it may be the best. It is a direct political affront to Rome. Mark 1.1 says this is the good news of the Son of God, a term that the Caesars in Rome had begun to use to proclaim their own alleged deity. And then when it says he's the anointed one, the Christ, it means he's the one who belongs on the throne. In fact, Jesus himself said it. The Father's given me all authority in heaven and on earth. And later in this letter, Paul will come back to it. And in a stunning way, he will paint the picture of the king of the universe who humbled himself to find you and me when we were forgotten because he remembered us. Jesus is our true king. In fact, he's king of all. And related to this, we find the word gospel. 
It's here in verses 5 and 7. So write down the word gospel and put your equals sign again. And then I've got a short phrase for you, and I'll say it a few times. Gospel equals who Jesus is and what Jesus did. I'll give you a moment to take this down and to take it in. The gospel, as many of you know, means the good news. But just as Messiah can be misunderstood, so the gospel can be misunderstood. Sometimes we think of good news as anything that seems good to us at the moment. Well, we finished above budget this year. It's good news. The house sold in one day. It's good news. We're going to have strawberry ice cream on Wednesday night of VBS. It's very good news, right? Amen. But this is not the kind of good news that Paul is writing about. When Paul writes the gospel in verse 5 and 7, he means specifically who Jesus is and what Jesus did. In other words, the person and the work of Jesus. What he has in mind is the word that was used by the kings of their day to say, good news, good news, Vespasian is king or whoever else has been made Caesar. And what kind of person do we have in charge? And what has he done to deserve being in charge? So when Paul writes here uh, seven times that this is about the King Jesus, and twice that this is about how Jesus became King, and that good news, what we have is for the people in the early church in Philippi and in Ephesus, a reminder that no matter what life seems like in the moment, God is on the throne. That no matter where you're at and, and what trouble you have in the present, that God is in charge. And as we'll see in just a minute, Paul has great hope that God is a God who finishes what he starts. Let me give you another set of words before we move on. When Paul writes verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word grace is part of a word group that's going to come up over and over again in Philippians. I want you to mark four words on this page this morning. The word grace in verse 2. The word thank in verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God. The word joy in verse 4. Making my prayer with joy. And again, the word grace in verse 7. You are all partakers with me of grace. In the English, we see grace, thank, joy, and grace. In the Greek, they would hear those ideas, but with words that sounded the same. They're all part of one word group. Let me just say them for you. Not that you need to know them or try to write this part down, but so that you can hear how they sound alike. The word grace in the Greek text is charis. Charis, okay? The word thank that Paul uses is eucharisto. Can you hear it? Charis and charisto. Charis and eucharisto. And the word joy in verse 4 is kara. Charis and kara and eucharisto are all part of a Greek word group that have to do with joy. And this is the bedrock and the heartbeat of this letter, is that Paul has found the secret to joy in both good times and difficult times, with plenty and with little. As he'll say later in the letter, he has discovered the way 
of, of doing all things with Jesus' strength, of enduring all things through Jesus' endurance. And so this is the bedrock of his joy and his thanksgiving, is the grace that God has given to us. And as we work through the book, we'll show you many places where this comes out. Paul feels something special about these Philippians. Paul feels connected to these Philippians, and it's deeper than just the fact that they sent a monetary gift. Paul feels connected to these Philippians in a way that he calls partnership in verse 5. And he calls partakers with me in verse 7. These are strong words. They mean somebody has invested their time and their energy and their money and their heart and their prayer and their thoughts into something together. These are not the words that you use towards children. These are the words you use towards equals, towards co-workers, partnership, partakers together. And why does Paul feel this way? Well, one reason is because he's been remembered by them. But he's had a special relationship with them going all the way back to his first ministry in Europe. Paul is going to say something important in verse 6, and it has to do with the history of their relationship. Let me read verse 6 to you. Paul wrote, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's hope and his joy are founded in Rooted in the idea that the God who creates is the God who completes. That the God who starts is the God who finishes. And that God, when he looks at you and me, sees a project that can be a success. This is not the way that many of us feel about ourselves from time to time. When we think that we are the material that God could never shape into a real Christian person. Some of you have lived a long time in your life feeling as if you cannot be enough for God. Some of you have fallen back into times of addiction after trying to claw your way out of it. And you feel as if you're not good enough for God. Others have had the kind of grudges or, or, or trouble of hatred or, or fighting come up between you and other people over and over again so that you've learned to believe about yourself that you cannot be liked. You will never be loved. And some of you, even though you have been part and participants in God's church for decades, Live with the fear that on the day of Christ, the day of King Jesus, when he comes back, he will look at you and he will say, I don't know who you are because you feel like you don't measure up for him. You're not enough for him. And all of these are lies from the pit of hell. It is not how God sees you. We have to remember in our life, as imperfect as we are, that relapses are just road marks and signposts on the road of recovery. And that our deficiencies and our sin and our problems are things that God is working on. That he saved us in spite of. That he loved us when we were at our most sinful 
And so he will complete his love by being faithful to us even when we struggle for years. He's not the God who gives up. He's the God who finishes. I hope you'll write this down in your book. God is a finisher. God completes his work. I am sure of this, Paul said. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's three reasons that Paul can say that with confidence. The first is that Paul's own story confirms that God finishes well. Paul's own story. Paul, when he began with God, was a Jew for the Jews. He was excelling in all of his studies under Gamaliel, one of the foremost Jewish Pharisee teachers of his day. Paul was a zealot, self-proclaimed. He was crazy about doing things right for God, about being righteous for God, about living a perfect life. So when these people called Christians came on the scene and they were changing all of the traditional ways of worship, Paul was the one who was throwing them in prison and approving of their murders and holding the coats for people that were killing the early Christians. And then one day, on the Damascus Road, on his way to arrest more Christians, he sees the king. He has a, a Christophany, as they sometimes call it. Christ reveals himself to him in this glorious vision. It blinds Paul. And he meets the ruler of the universe. Because God, who started a work in Paul, isn't going to be deterred by the fact that Paul's zealous living is way off track of what God had in mind. He's going to finish the work. And Paul, a few days later, when he hears the good news about King Jesus, believes and something falls off of his eyes like scales. And something fell off of his heart like a veil. And he understands in that moment that God's finishing of his work in Paul is not going to be because of Paul's performance, but because of God's faithfulness. So Paul has a personal reason to know that God finishes what he starts. The Philippians have a personal confirmation to know that God finishes what he starts. Who are the people in Philippi? Well, when Paul gets there in Acts chapter 16, the first person he meets, having set foot in Europe for the first time in his ministry, is a woman named Lydia who sells fine fabrics. She's a businesswoman in an age in which businesswomen are few and far between. She is a woman who is trying to make her way in a man's world. And we think that we have equality problems. She is experiencing something far more dire, far more desperate. And what is the message that's given to Lydia? Lydia, who happens to be, by the way, from Asia Minor, where Paul wanted to do ministry, but the Holy Spirit had said no, and had said no, and then finally sent him over to Philippi. This woman meets a king whose take on men and women is, now in Jesus Christ, there is no longer male and female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Talk about God bringing to completion an unfinished part of her story. She's in a community now where women are honored and cherished and have vital roles to play and spirit-given gifts to use. What about the jailer in Philippi? Philippi is a Roman colonial city. Their allegiance is to Caesar. 
And many of their populace are retired soldiers who have served in his armies. These are ex-military men. People like the jailer in Philippi are guys who have lived it hard. They've killed and nearly been killed. They're suffering from post-traumatic stress, even though they're centuries from knowing what that is. And they're trying to balance life in retirement as men who always got by through violence in a city in which they've got to find new jobs and new careers, deal with their anxieties, and try to wrestle with exactly how much nationalism is healthy for them. And in this man, the jailer in Philippi, he finds Jesus, the king who says now in Jesus Christ there's no longer barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. This jailer who on the night when Paul and his companions were miraculously freed from prison was a moment away from committing suicide on his sword. And Paul takes him home, preaches the gospel of Jesus the King to him, and he believes and is baptized and his family is baptized And he washes and binds Paul's wounds and those of his companions. And he finds new comrades in Jesus Christ. You see, God is faithful in Paul and in the Philippians to bring about to completion things that had been started in them. And he'll do even more at the day of King Jesus, at the coming of Jesus Christ. But Paul and the Philippians have a confirmation that they share together. This is the third one. Paul knows God is a finisher because when he was in Asia Minor and he wanted to do ministry in Ephesus previously, God's Holy Spirit said no. And then Paul said, how about we go up to Galatia? That seems like a fruitful place for ministry. And God's Spirit said no. And so Paul, in some desperation, receives a vision from the Holy Spirit in his sleep that night of a man from Macedonia, Macedonia is the state, Philippi is the city, saying, come to us, we need to know about Jesus. And Paul follows, and when he steps foot in European soil, he meets these people, Lydia and the jailer and others like them, who welcome them into their homes, who are so grateful to meet a king that is finishing the unfinished parts of their lives, that they willingly partner with Paul. They willingly uh, pay for the ministry and the mission's work and share in it together, not so they can control him, but out of generous hearts. This is why Paul, who began his ministry in Europe with the Philippians, can say, God completes good works in you. Because he can see now how years later, he never would have known he was going to need the Philippians now. But God knew They're your partners for life. They'll be there through thick and through thin. They will help you experience a joy that is more than happiness thin. When all of the happy things are stripped away and you're sitting in the muck of a prison cell, the Philippians will still be there shining their light. God finishes his work and he can do it in you too. He's not done with you. So this is the prayer that Paul prays. Last four minutes, I'll read these three verses of Paul's prayer, and I hope that you will use the prayer at home and in church with your children and your grandchildren. Let me read it. Paul says, verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So point one here of Paul's prayer. 
Paul says, I pray that your love will abound. When Paul says your love will abound, he uses the same word, abound or overflow, that he uses in Romans 15, 13, our theme verse for the year, when he says, the God of hope will fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Same language. He says, may your love abound and overflow more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And when Paul says knowledge here, in this particular verse, he doesn't mean book knowledge. In this verse, what he means is experiential knowledge. This is the Greek word epinosis, which means lived and experienced wisdom. So Paul's prayer for the churches is not that he is just immediately released from trouble or that they're immediately released from their troubles, but that their love will be so much that they will experience in their personal relationships this outpouring of love that leads to godly knowledge and godly wisdom. May you have, Philippians, an outpouring of God's love experienced in your life. Point two is verse 10. He says, so that you can learn to approve what's excellent. Paul is praying that they will become uh, morally discerning. Paul wants them in a culture that like our own world had some very ambiguous morality. So a lot of areas that would be called gray areas to live in in this world. Paul is praying that their love and their experience of love will be so great that they will begin to see like Jesus what is not just acceptable, but look at the word, excellent. Paul will come back to this later in the book when he says to think about to, to put your minds and to dwell on things that are true and noble and trustworthy. Point three is verse 11. Paul says, so that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. See, his prayer, his prayer isn't just for them to get over their sicknesses. His prayer isn't just, God, release me from prison. His prayer isn't just that they'll get out of whatever relationship troubles they'll have. His prayer is that Jesus will do a work in them that will ground them in the joy of Christ in thick or in thin, in good times or in bad. And so he says to them here that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And I think sometimes we read this so wrongly. We read fruit of righteousness and we think, see, that's the part that I was afraid of, the part I can't do. God wants me to be filled with all of this fruit of righteousness I've got to behave well enough to get his approval. And that couldn't be more of a misunderstanding of what Paul is writing here. Paul is writing that your love will overflow and your experience of love will give you a discerning and wise moral mind so that you can have fruit. See, he does want you to behave. He does want you to learn what's right and wrong. He does want you to have a better life, a better moral life, but not because of your rightness. Look at the words. It says, the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We read it, God, give, you, know, you need me to be approved because I have the fruit of my righteousness. No, that was what Paul had abandoned when he was trying to do it through his own performance. This is the same as Romans 8.4. When Paul writes to that church, 
that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the, the right requirement of the law, the dikaiosune, the righteousness of God, is fully met in us through Jesus Christ. And here he says to the Philippians, it is Jesus Christ who is right. This is how he finishes it in us. This is how he finishes it in us. Not because we're so right, but because Jesus is. Not because we're so good, but because Jesus is. Not because we uh, become, uh, behave so well, but because Jesus did. And by looking at Him and leaning on Him and finding our joy in Him, we find that our life slowly does become transformed. And all of this is to the glory of God, Paul says. Why? Because it didn't come from us. It came from Him. He started it and He finishes it. He created it and He'll recreate it. He's the one who put the spark of the Holy Spirit's calling in you, and he's the one who will put the finishing polish of the Holy Spirit's work on you because he's the one from beginning to end, and he's the one that we trust. This is why we have joy. So together this morning, let's stand. Let's sing this song, and we'd invite you and welcome you. If you want to pray with anyone at the church, we'll have elders in two locations in the back to pray with you, and also you're welcome to come right here and to pray with me. Or another elder will, will come right up and pray with you here. So right back there, right here. If you'd like to put on Jesus in baptism, we'll do it. Uh, despite the tent, uh, if you want to pray, we'll pray. So, glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.